Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And this week, Twitter have announced that they will be deleting accounts that haven't been accessed in six months from the 11th of December. So you have been warned. Uber lost its London licence after it was found that more than 14,000 trips were taken with drivers who had faked their identity on its app. And with Black Friday supposed to be tomorrow, many retailers, including Amazon, John Lewis and Argos, have spread their offers over more than a week. And that is apparently to ease pressure on the stores and home delivery networks. Have you taken advantage of any uh, Black Friday deals, Heather? I haven't. I haven't. I think I think my husband's having a look for a laptop, so I think he might be hoping that there's a deal to be struck somewhere along the line. But um, I don't know, really. I, We've talked about this before, haven't yeah. we? It's a bit mm, Black Friday, but a lot of people are still very excited by it. I think if you're buying high-value items, I think it's it's definitely worth looking at, but... Yeah. yeah, let us know if he gets I, a laptop. I, I like to shop when I shop, not when they tell <laughs> me to shop. Okay, so the topical discussion this week is something that I should know a bit more about than I realise that I do. It's farming. My cousin's husband is a dairy farmer. It's been in his family for many years. He's a tenant farmer and I know it's hard work. I know he works long hours for not much money. But apart from that, and apart from knowing that cows are a lot bigger than you think when you actually get up close to them. Aren't they just? Yeah, a bit scary. um, I didn't know much about farming. So when Heather suggested this as a subject i dove in i i dived i dived yeah that's yeah, the word isn't it in. i dived in and and i first of all looked up the definition of what it is to be a farmer so this definition is um related to uk taxation laws so under uk taxation laws in order to qualify as a farmer you as a taxpayer must satisfy two tests you must be in occupation of land And the purpose of the occupation must be, at least mainly, for husbandry, i.e. cultivating crops or breeding and rearing livestock. So you must live on some land and you must be growing stuff, animals or plants. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, and that that satisfies the definition of under UK tax laws. So Heather, that's that was the limit of my knowledge of farming. There, what did you find? Well, I started to have a look. My father worked in farming when um, when I was a kid. So the Farmers Weekly. Oh, I uh, found that magazine. Yeah, that was a regular magazine in our house, as was. The farming programme that, to my absolute boredom as a child, used to be on s- Sunday, Sunday at afternoon, like obviously. twelve o'clock or something, or you know, and you it's had a to snooze keep, zone. The snooze zone, and you had to you had to keep quiet. But I think it's fair to say that so it was dairy farming that my dad was involved with predominantly, and he was a farm worker. He wasn't a farm owner, and I think that um, things have moved on massively. Since those days, in fact, last year I went to one of these automated dairy units where they have where the where the they're like they're um it's like this massive carousel. Anybody who's involved in dairy farming, I apologise for my um, descriptions here, but it, we, traditionally we think of a a, a, a milking parlour as the cows walk in, a man attaches. The, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you weren't thinking of the milkmaid still. No, no, I think we. I know we know moved, moved on a bit from there, um, but now. There's this massive carousel and they are milking cows twice a day um, 
with a, an aim to milk three times a day and I was talking to the farm owner and whether or not this is right morally or, or not, um, he anticipates that before very long you will be able to milk four times a day. Wow. Um, and that, that one of the only, one of the main factors affecting that is the butter fat yield in milk and the demands that the supermarkets make in terms of what the butter, butter fat content they want in their milk. So I don't know if it'll be in our lifetime, but certainly he's saying there's no reason why not with some tweaks in the food that they give to the cows, et cetera, et cetera. So dairy farming, I think, is, you know, we, we kind of understand that. But actually, agriculture itself is has changed massively. We still milk cows, get that. But the crops that we're growing, the crops evolve. The challenges that farmers face in terms of supermarkets, again, screwing the price down as tight as, as possible so that there's as little profit in 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 the farming as as um, as possible and that i think one of the big challenges is the mental health issues that that's impacted on the farmers uh, never mind the farming economy because i think that that evolves i mean you know we've got you know, crops that are bought uh, are grown for for biomass um production fuel production and stuff like that so it's it, yeah it's really evolving massively well, one of the stats that I saw, um, it's on a government publication, the annual report of agriculture in the United Kingdom, chock full of um, stats there. But I was um, shocked to see that 14% of UK farms fail to make a positive FBI, which is a farm business income, which is a new calculation, relatively new, uh, as opposed to net income, um, that looks at the financial return to all unpaid labour on their capital invested in the farm business. And it, it's a, a tool, very much like a, a, a profit tool, which is designed to compare performance across different types of farming. Um, so 14% fail to actually make a positive um, farm business income, which is, is quite shocking, really, and, and is a symptom of um, the, the supply chain, I'm guessing, and, and the, the cost is going up of, of all the things that the farmers need and the price at the gate is, is getting screwed lower and lower. And also, I think diversification is massive. When I started my business, um, I attended a, a training course that was done by an organisation called Women in Rural Enterprise, WIRE. And that was predominantly set up because very often in a traditional, you know, the farmer and his wife, kind of, I know that model is, is, is changing massively. Um, but in that stereotypical environment, the wife would would be working, doing perhaps doing the books or, you know, doing some of, some of the admin-y stuff as well as helping, you know, birth cows and things like that. But diversification, um, development of farm buildings, a change to camping, bed and breakfast, you know, all of those types of things, small cottage industries, yogurt making, small elements. So they were they were looking at helping women to to find these sort of changes, um, the opportunities within their business uh, to to bring in other money because most farms are heavily reliant on subsidies, and as we know. 
Well, that's all up in the air, isn't it? Yeah, and and particularly with the whole B word thing. I've got some other stats as well from that same publication. It's a 119-page report, but I'm happy to report that there was a nice summary at the beginning. Um, The utilised agricultural area in the UK is 17.4 million hectares, which meant nothing to me until I read that it covers 71% of land in the UK. And uh, the number of pigs. Do you know how many pigs there are in the UK? Quite a few. Five million. Sheep and lamb, 34 million. And the total labour force involved in agriculture is 477,000. I mean, that is massive. It it only um, accounts for 1.5% of the whole employment, but um, but it's a that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people involved yeah. in agriculture, and given that it's actually, um, you know, the food that we eat, we sort of rely on it somewhat as well, yeah. don't we? Yeah, I saw some stats, and it was look. It said that the average age of the British farmholder is fifty nine, and that there is um, traditionally, again, you know, father, son, daughter. You you would you'd stay work in the farm. At least one of the sons or daughters would stay work in the farm. But young people are, are, are falling out of love with the whole with the whole idea. Um, well, uh, on Farmers Weekly, um, there there was an article about ways to get into farming. Okay. So maybe if you if you're yeah, not yeah. Um, part of a farming family, but you're interested in doing it, and this is an article that actually, sadly, I was able to access um, when I was doing my research. Um, But I must have accessed it more than three times because now it says I need to register to access it again. So I've got the list in front of me and it starts off with a matchmaking service. So somebody with land who needs somebody to do the farming for them. Ah. And those those services exist. Farm management. So you can manage a farm for somebody, again, who owns land but doesn't actually want to do the farming. Crowdfunding. There was an example of a gentleman who crowdfunding funded his livestock farm. Uh, He wanted to start a a business and um, presumably put a, a decent enough case, an interesting enough case, and, and got the funding for that. You can do contract farming. You can have a tenancy, which is what my cousin's husband has. Um, contract rearing. You can be contracted to rear certain types of animals or certain breeds of animals. There's something called the Farmer's Apprentice Competition, you oh. can take part in that is run by Farmers Weekly. You can marry into a farming family, and number nine is win the lottery. Oh, really? Yeah, but <laughs> which a turkey farmer? They gave an example of a turkey farmer always wanted to be a farmer, and uh, he he won the lottery and bought himself a turkey farm. Right. I suppose then you own a farm, but you've still got to make it sustainable, haven't you? And I think that's where the challenges <laughs> yeah, really, really come so. into their own. Yes, starting. Yeah. The, Owning the land or having access to the land's one thing, yeah, but there's quite a lot of um, skill and knowledge involved in actually making it pay. Um, and there's some resources on the government website. There's a whole section on the A to Z of business for um, for the agribusiness, so from sick pay skills and training, agricultural workers' rights, application for certain registers, um, agricultural worker, holiday entitlements, etc., etc. There's a big whole long list there, and we'll put the link for that on our website. 
one stat that I found, so I, I was looking on Farmers Weekly and to see what what are some of the issues that are facing farmers at the moment. And one that, apart from flooding, which is massive, um, and DEFRA has announced that um, there are going to be grants of up to £25,000 um, made available to farmers whose land is, is in, has been affected by flood. Um, I'm not sure what the criteria are, but I'm sure, I, I imagine it's pretty tough. But fly tipping has emerged as... Because um, I think there's been a change that if people fly tip on your land, you as the farmer are responsible for the disposal oh, no. of said items, and um, which I think is, is is terribly unfair. In fact, I read a comment from a female farmer, and she said that we live 12 miles away from uh, a well-known fast food outlet, and 12 miles is obviously how far it takes for you to eat your meal. Uh, and chuck the drink cart and then the bag and the packaging out of the... So they're, they're, they're just overrun with this stuff and the, the, the financial onus is on them to deal with it. And then there was a, a DEFRA report and it was looking at trends in fly-tipping incidents in England, which I never thought I'd be looking at in terms of <laughs> a, a statistic. Heather, come and do a business show with me. You can look into fly-tipping fly tipping. But I think it was because I was so annoyed that that... You know, why are you fly tipping in the first place? Why are you dumping rubbish in the first place? And then it's the farmer's responsibility. Um, and looking at, at in 2007-8, there was a spike. And then it dipped as we moved out, well, through recession, I think. And now it's emerging again. And I wonder whether there is some correlation between fly tipping and recession. And that can only be not just for chucking your food wrappers out the window, but perhaps not being able to afford to go and have your rubbish disposed of properly if you're a business. So you might be just, well, not you, but people might be just dumping stuff in a hedgerow because they don't want to pay to have it taken away from their business. So I wonder if there is a correlation. But, it's uh, yeah, I just was disappointed that the farmers should have to foot the bill, really. Well, we'll put the links to some of the articles and the stats that we've found on the business of farming on our website with the podcast, and that's thebusiness.community. So in the other news section this week, um, a couple of stories that caught my eye, and I know Tracy's got a few. Um, sticking with the farming theme, uh, I noticed that John Deere tractors, you know, those well-known big green tractors with the yellow writing, um, the firm who, who manufacture and sell them have issued a profit warning um, and are blaming the US-China trade war um, for it. They've slashed its profit forecast for 2020, warning that farmers are more cautious about investing in new technology. And I think that certainly um, is going to be as much to do with um, the B word in the UK uh, as anything else. Um, in fact, they expect they expect their net income in 2020 to be 2.7 billion um, rather than the anticipated 3.4 billion. So uh, big numbers, big numbers. Uh, Tracy mentioned at the top of the show about Uber losing their license. But fear not if you live in London or you like to use Uber um, in and around your local area because Indian ride sharing firm Ola has begun signing up drivers in London ahead of plans to launch services in the capital in the coming weeks. Um, they 
it, it's vehicle sharing. So, you know, you can expect that it's not just going to be you in your car. They're, they're going to be picking people up. A bit like I remember in Tunisia, once sharing a, a taxi with a lady with a chicken um, in her bag. There, there we go. Uh, car sharing that's a whole other that's story. a whole other story um so watch this space i guess and i had a look at uber and where it is in the uk um, and i think the nearest uber town is stoke-on-trent it's your it's my hometown your, your hometown yeah um so yeah maybe it won't infiltrate anymore or maybe i don't know if the london thing will impact on Uber across the rest of the country. I'm not quite sure how it works. but um, And then finally, um, uh, just an article that caught my eye saying that UK business schools have the most employable graduates. Um, so if in terms of various um, recruiters, they, Bloomberg did a survey of 1,300 recruiters um, and at 1,600 companies, and they said that they are willing to pay, pay top dollar for um, high-ranking um, graduates, etc., and that the areas that they're looking at, and these are um, very important to them, creative problem-solving, strategic thinking, leadership skills, and communication skills, which is, news, uh, is music to my ears, because what they're saying is that although you have people who have the qualifications, it's those softer skills as yeah. they're known um that really are, are, are going to set the difference we were talking about that in the future of work weren't we where the advice from the the guy at linkedin was to to up your it skills but also to up your soft skills as well because yeah. they're, they're the things that can't be replaced yeah, by absolutely. ai so easily and that article featured on studyinternational.com um, which in itself is a really interesting website if you or anybody that you know is involved in the world of academia or is studying for a career path. Um, so some good support and, and advice there. What have you got, Tracy? Okay, first of all, I wanted to put a shout out for some Christmas shows. Oh, my goodness. We're not quite in December yet, but the planning is well underway here at Calon FM. And we're doing a number of different shows over the Christmas. I'm, and I'm talking here about me and Heather. There are lots of other shows um, going to be available and the schedule will be on the Calon FM website, calonfm.com. But uh, Heather kicks off the specials over Christmas um, on the 23rd of December. Heather and her husband, Stuart. What are you talking about on the 23rd of December at 10 o'clock? For two hours, we are going to be playing some alternative Christmas music, music that we've tracked down. Um, and, and, and we're going we're gonna to chat about them. And some of them will be cover versions by artists that you might not have heard of. And others will be just original pieces of music, songs, but all of them will be good. All of them will be Christmassy. Um, some of them might be a bit dark, so it's not, it's not, just, it's not just tinsel and baubles. It's, uh, it's good music. And then the following day, Christmas Eve, between 5 and 7, I'm doing a special um, two-hour show for Calon Brass. So it's all going to be Christmas music, all played by brass bands and brass ensembles. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Then we jump after Christmas and I've roped my two children in who Brilliant. used to be presenters on Chatty Children, the show that doesn't exist anymore, but uh, uh, my children are still quite chatty and still quite keen to be on air. So on the 27th of December, Rianne Jones will be doing her playlist and 30th of December, 
Yolo Jones will be doing his, and they're both 12 noon till 1 o'clock. So that's a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old hitting the airwaves with music that might take you by surprise, given their age. Oh, They've got very interesting taste in music. Brilliant. Okay. And then me and Heather are back. We're doing a live show on the 30th of December between 1 and 3 p.m. Not quite sure what we're going to be talking about yet. It won't be quite as formal as our normal business show. Will there be a small sherry? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's Christmas. That's the excuse, isn't it? Oh, we we can have all these mince pies and all this sherry. It's Christmas. Um, Then Heather's doing a special show on New Year's Eve. Yes. Two o'clock. Do you know what you're going to do yet? Uh, I think that will be a bit more... uh, Well, it won't be Christmassy music. I think it'll be a bit more for those people who are peeling potatoes and trying to pipe cream cheese into volivant cases for their New Year's <laughs> Eve party. So I'll be listening in company <laughs> while they're in the kitchen. Then we're back with the business show on the 2nd of December, 12 till 2. It's going to be a compilation because me and Heather are taking a little bit of a break. I think we're allowed one, aren't we? So we're going to pull together some of our favourite bits from the last two years because it's nearly two years oh we've been my doing goodness. this now. Mad, isn't it? And then we're back live with the business community on the 9th of December, normal time, 12 noon. I mean, that is the ninth of January. What am I talking about? Yeah, ninth of January. That is the most important other news, isn't it? (laughs) Right. Other other news that I've found: uh, an article in People Management about swearing, and I have to be really careful here not to mention any of the words. Swearing in the workplace is apparently rife. There's been a survey conducted by the Leadership Factor for. Um, forecom and they say that the average UK employee hears 11 swear words a day and 11% of those surveyed hear more than 25 swear words a day however 12% uh, admitted they never hold back on their language at work and 19% said that they try not to swear in front of their workmates I think I'm in the try not category at the moment but occasionally one will slip out yeah, I yeah, I well, I try not to because most of my work colleagues are clients. So yeah. I try not to swear in front of them. <laughs> and uh, supervisors and line managers were rated by their colleagues as having the foulest language, followed by surprisingly enough receptionists and admin staff. I can get the admin, but receptionists. Wow. Um, and they did have a list of the most common words i'm not going to read them out on air because i don't want to breach our license and have a whole load of complaints however we will put a link for the article <laughs> we will write them on our- <laughs> yeah we might not actually write out the words in full <laughs> the most common word begins with f anyway and okay. then it goes down from there right to more serious things we've talked about the small business commissioner since its uh, inception and He stepped down in October amidst controversy. Um, There seemed to be some conflict in his role as a mediator of payment disputes and his involvement with a a group of business stakeholders. Um, It's something to do with the Business Banking Resolution Service. Apparently, it was a voluntary commission. He hadn't actually taken up the position yet, but the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy felt his involvement with the BBRS represented a conflict of interest. The update we've had this week is that Suzanne Burke, Head of Operations at the Office of the Small Business Commissioner, is currently acting as the Commissioner, pending a substantive appointment being made. So I'll keep an eye on that one. And finally, um, the... ICO have reported on their blog that they've appointed a 
um, a data ethics and digital economy advisor. That's quite a job title. Yeah. You won't get that on a business card, will um, you? Let's call him the ethics advisor, okay. called Ellis Parry. And apparently his brief is not to establish a large data ethics function in the ICO, um, but it is a vibrant area for debate and exploration. And so he's going to be working with other stakeholders um, in in looking at how um, information rights strategic plan is going to have an impact on ethics and data privacy in the UK. That sounds like quite a job, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I when I think of ethics now, I think of that character from The Good Place, Chitty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so now, Ellis Parry, I'm sorry, I don't know what you look like, but in my head, you look like Chitty from The Good Place. You're listening to The Business Community on Callan FM. And this week, I went to a conference, um, a workshop in Birmingham. <laughs> Interesting story. I was on the train just departing from Shrewsbury and the announcement said, this train is for Aberystwyth. We're now in Welshpool. No, we're not. And then after we'd left Shrewsbury, it said, the next stop is Newtown. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, if I end up in Aberystwyth, it's very nice. It's not Birmingham. It's not where the workshop is. I'm sure I'll have a lovely day. You could get an ice cream, (laughs) skim a few stones, get back on the train. But um, I did end up in Birmingham and I ended up in a venue, which I thought I'd give a mention to. It's called the Birmingham Conference and Events Centre, the BCEC. And the reason why I mention it is because it's so flipping handy for Birmingham New Street. Oh. So you walk out of the south side exit, down the steps, cross the road and it's there. It's right next door to the Holiday Inn, if you know the Holiday Inn there. And um, so from that point of view, it took me two hours to get down to Birmingham on the train. It took me two minutes to get from the train station to this Mm -hmm. venue. So in terms of location, spot on. Uh, Other things that I thought were were quite good about it... um, Lots of flexible meeting spaces. So we were in a room, um, there were about 12 of us in this meeting space, uh, boardroom style table, um, excellent audio visual facilities. And when it didn't connect, a guy came, um, besuited gentleman with like one of those clips over his ear for answering oh, the phone. He's you in know, constant contact. Yeah. Um, I always think of cybermen with those things. Mm. Um, he came and sorted that out. There was breakfast provided and coffee on, you know, in these machines. You could help yourself, you know, the proper coffee, nice dispensing machines. There was a buffet lunch, which was a, a curry buffet. And it was really, really very tasty. Lovely drinks, afternoon tea. Um, the only negative I would say is that the toilet were two flights. So we were down in the basement and the toilets were on the first floor. Okay. So it was a bit of a trek. If you're in a workshop and you just need to nip out to the loo. Yeah, you don't want to. A bit, a bit of a trek. So fortunately, nobody needed to nip out too much and just went at the allotted break times. Now, I went to the front desk and said, I'd really interested to know um, what your room rates are, please. But apparently that's top secret. Oh. Yeah, you, you could only find out what they were by phoning the sales desk. So mm. I don't really want to book it. I just want to mention it on the show because I think really handy venue. Oh, it depends on the day. So what, what I'm gathering is if they're quiet, they might give you a really good deal. Yeah. If they're busy, 
not so. Yeah. That's all I could see. But I don't, I don't know how it compares, but I'm guessing it's got to be competitive. It's in the centre of Birmingham. There are lots of other conference venues. But this one, um, being right next to Holiday Inn, actually the toilets were in the Holiday Inn, I think, so it was sort of connected, but, okay. but not branded like the Holiday Inn, but it is, is very similar to that. Um, so I, I would really recommend it. That was my discovery of the week. The workshop was very good as well. But I found that the facilities, so they go from small meet, meeting rooms to large meeting rooms. And they they say on their website they can accommodate over a thousand delegates. I don't know if that's all in one room. I didn't see a very, very large room, but there were lots of flexible spaces and nice as well. It was not tatty around the edges. Sometimes you get those sort of things. And there were free pens as well. It's always a if you, if you always come a away with a pen. If you go to a conference or a workshop, you want the pen. So that's uh, one thing I discovered. And another thing I just want to quickly mention is um, Wikipedia co-founder, Jimmy Wales, he launched a new social media platform relatively recently called WT Social. And it, it's apparently allowing people to post and share articles but promises never to share information with third-party companies. It doesn't have advertising on there. It's an ad-free social networking platform which encourages high-quality content and discourse in a bid to combat the um, well-known now um, problems with dis spread of disinformation and hate speech. I signed up. Now, I was given three options. One was to wait, and apparently I was 267,000th in the list of people waiting to join. Or I could pay £10 a month or I could share it with friends and colleagues. So I opted for the share with friends and colleagues option. And I, I've got into the platform. And it, it, it's got a real old-fashioned feel. It's obviously, there's no bells and whistles on there. You know, it's not, not super fancy. But it is, it's, you know, obviously funded by donations. So clearly they've, they've got a a little way to go to make it up there to compete with the Facebooks, Twitters and Instas of this world. But I just thought I'd mention it. It's something that potentially could take off. Don't really know at this stage. I've got an account. I've had a quick look. I haven't felt incredibly engaged because I don't know a lot of people that are on there. But it's something I'm going to sort of dip into. I just remember that's how I felt when I first started using Twitter. And now look at me. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd, I'd give that a mention. That's WT Social. And um, you might also find it under Wiki Tribune, which used to be a, a fact checking service. Heather, what have you discovered this week? Well, I've brought with me a little box of goodies. That, uh, I saw something on Facebook uh, that caught my eye. Um, mental health at work, mental health first aid is, is all over the place and really, really important. Um, but I saw that Macmillan, uh, Macmillan Cancer Support, have made a pack, Your Work and Cancer Toolkit. And basically, it's, it comes in this, you send off for it and it's free. And it's a number of booklets that come in this little fold, like a little fold, like a little sort of box file, really. And it has lots of information aimed at managing cancer in the workplace. Because as we know, um, is it about 48%? Is it one in two of us is going to have cancer at some point in our life? So managing cancer in the workplace, um, work and cancer, and then... Um, 
working while caring for someone with cancer. So it talks about if you're a carer, um, it sort of signposts you to additional support and help because very often if you're living with somebody who is um, suffering from cancer and receiving treatment for cancer, the focus is understandably all on them and getting them better and, and helping them. And sometimes you feel neglected. That can imp impact on your 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 work your your workload your mental health etc um if you have cancer what what are, what are your entitlements what are your statutory entitlements what enhancements are there what can you re reasonably ask for and if you have people who are managing people who are suffering with cancer what sort of things might they need to be mindful of um what sort of language might they want to use how could they signpost people to additional support it's a really yeah, it's brilliant it's a brilliant pack um it's really easy to read. It's got some really good guidance and, um, and information in it. And as I say, you just go to Macmillan Cancer Support and you request your work and cancer toolkit. Well, I for one will be requesting that after we've finished here. This is the business community on Callan FM. And our profile this week is of a lady, CBE, Jacqueline De Rockers. Is that right, Heather? Rockers, I think. Rockers. Uh, she's the president of Tech UK and the chair of the Board of Digital Leaders. She's a non-exec director on a number of companies. But essentially, she's a titan of tech. Whoa. <laughs> That's uh, how she is described. Uh, she's also um, on Twitter. She's JDR underscore tech. She uh, describes herself as president of Tech UK and Digital Leaders, co-chair of IO Coding, Ned of Rightmove, Costain Group, FDM Group and mentor. She's hashtag diversity and a believer in lifelong learning. So I liked her straight away. I, I can I can put my big thumb, thumbs up to lifelong learning. And um, both me and Heather have listened to two different interviews with her. So you listened to Desert Island Discs, is that right? I did, Lauren Laverne, yeah. And I listened to the interview um, with Lawrence Jones on his podcast. And I think we've probably got the same story. So she's very consistent with her, yeah. her story that's out there. Um, and in the interview with Lawrence Jones, she talks a lot about the lack of diversity, uh, the issues in the sk uh, with skill sector, uh, skills gap, sorry, and... Um, the role that she plays in promoting diversity and actually helping to plug the skills gap, not just from um, female gender, but all of the different areas that are underrepresented in tech. She came across as warm and um, very knowledgeable and seemed like a safe pair of hands to me, both for an interview and running a business. What What was your impression of uh, Desert Island Discs, Heather? Yeah, she was... Um I'm, I'm conscious that I might cough, so I apologise in advance if I do. I'll um, cover for you. Thank you. She <laughs> she did come across as very warm. She got very emotional at one point when one of the records that she chose was for her mother, who's suffering from dementia. So her story is interesting in... Dear me, her story <coughs> is interesting. Sorry, her story is interesting <laughs> in, in a different way to that of our favourite lady of all time, Dame Stephanie Shirley, who changed her name to Steve. Yeah. In order to succeed in in the uh, computer market. This lady is a lady first and foremost. Makes no apology for that. Has never hidden that. Where she's really interesting, she she feels very strongly about um, the world being designed by men and, and we're in a male-biased world. But she 
she talked about jobs that she's had and she was very self-aware in terms of she took a role as MD of an organisation and one thing that really made me warm to her was she said, I got this job as MD. Well, she didn't get a job as MD to start with uh, but she'd applied and she didn't get it because um, she was told with the feedback, we just don't put women in those positions. Mm. Okay, so she dealt with that, got a job as an MD and then she said, there I was with my office, with, all, you know, this team and everything. And she, she thought, oh, my goodness. Absolute imposter syndrome. Because I realised I don't know what an MD does. <laughs> it's a similar um, article that I read where she said that she became an alphazilla. Oh, yeah. Is I've that written the that same one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, no idea what to do, so resorted to being like this... Uh, person who ate razor blades for breakfast <laughs> and yeah. interestingly enough she said she wasn't proud of that time in her life did you get that yeah from and her that well? she said that there were people who probably their their opinion of what she was like to work for wouldn't be a particularly complimentary one but she then decided to change the way that she managed and that was just by asking questions she realized that she didn't need to know everything she just needed to know what questions to ask to get the people to identify what needed to be done. And and it was that that self-awareness and that I was out of my depth kind of thing and I just made a conscious decision that I didn't need to be like Alpha Zilla. I could yeah. be I could just facilitate. She describes it as the best way to get a successful outcome without leaving dead bodies around you. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's a really, Absolutely. really good point. And I, I admire the fact that she she's honest and open about that because I think, um, you know, certainly uh, women of my generation who've come up through those ranks where, you know, you know, you were quite few and far between women who had risen into leadership roles. Power dressing and all that. And and so the uh, inclination is to be more man, isn't yeah. it? And the fact that she's recognised that she did that and, and is using that to actually describe how she's changed her leadership style, I think that's to be applauded. And I also think that when she talks about her private life, um, her father, her mother was a victim of an abusive relationship. Her father wasn't a great guy. Her mother then remarried and... Jacqueline's relationship with her stepfather wasn't great either because he w wasn't used to kids, you know, somebody else's kid. And she could very easily be a man-hater, you know, somebody who resents males. She doesn't. She's got a good relationship with her stepfather again now, hasn't she? Has, she has, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she has been married three times, um, but she says that her, her, her current and final husband... <laughs> And they have a great relationship. But she could be forgiven for being anti-men, but she's not. She's actually for everybody, but equality. And that's, yeah. that's the big thing. The other thing I noted was she said she hired a stylist to help her build her personal brand, which I think is, is another great idea. She said that made a huge difference to her confidence. <coughs> she, um, we're talking about the basis that... Um, 83% of communication is visual and 6% mm. being content. Mm. And so when she walks into the room, she wants to make sure that she commands respect and that she's heard mm. and has recognised that actually how she looks on first impressions is really important too. And I think some of that also will go back right the way back to her childhood because she's half Chinese and she said she was the only non-white, you know, the only mixed race kid in her school. Um, and that, 
you know, so your appearance would be very important then because you would look very different to the rest of the kids. Yeah. Even though to look at her now, you wouldn't necessarily think that she was half Chinese. And talking about her childhood, she, she said in a number of interviews, including the one that I listened to, maybe it was in Desert Island Discs as well, that she... Um, was invisible up to the age of 16. She made herself invisible yes. because of the issues she had with her father and her stepfather. And then at 16, she decided not to be invisible mm. anymore. Mm. And it seems to be that that's uh, stood her in good stead. Yeah, and, and I think we have to be careful that, you know, whenever we look at these types of people, they, they, they come to the top because they have been successful. And so they are telling us, us their story retrospectively, and it's a successful one. Yeah. There are lots of people who you know, have gone through who, similar things. Yeah, and don't don't make it. And so I'm not saying it's luck, but it's a combination of factors. Um, and for those people... It's not a formula. It's not a formula. But also, if you're on that journey, I mean, she's 57 or something. She's a few years older than me. Um, now, she's enjoying success now, but there are all those years where she was just working hard. So you might... You might be the next Jacqueline de Rockus, but you might just, just not, not have got, got there, there yet. Yeah. And I think that we have to just remember that this is this is the end, not the end. This is the um, the the result of a lot of time and a lot of investment, um, and we can't all rush there. So. Have you got any quotes, Heather? I've got um, a couple of quotes, actually. Shall I uh, leap in with mine? So this one harks back to something we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Um, in an article with Forbes about AI, she said, human interaction will never go out of style, no matter how advanced the tech. Yep, yep. And in an interview with Gordon Eden on his website, she said, my own self-limiting belief was that you had to be a man to make it. And that is simply not true. So I would tell my younger self to find your values and honour your authentic self. What have you got, Heather? Very good. I've got, at a certain point in my journey, I realised that collaboration and connection was a better way to get the best out of my team and, frankly, to give people space to be amazing. And I think that that's true in, in life in general. Just give people space to be amazing and they will, they will come up, rise up. What's it? Step up to the plate. Great. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. We're going to give you a whole week of space to be amazing <laughs> and come back and join us again next week for the business community on Callan FM. You've been listening to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. 